0: This message is from Icon, from community, Icon church. community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta and Metro it seeks to be Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, 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 and and renewal. Renewal. community, and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org, at iconcommunitychurch.org. or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, a Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I think that, that song is so apropos as we. Have said those words, we we want to not lean on our own foundation. And we want to understand really where God's foundation is, where God's kingdom is. And in many ways, as we get ready to begin this series on the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways, this is a, a question about what is our foundation? What do we really believe? What do we hold to? And really, what does it mean? to be uh, in, in relationship with God? What does it mean to, be, uh, to live in his kingdom? And so the, the, the best way, the best picture that I have to describe what this sermon means and what this, over the next seven, eight weeks of us going through this, what this kingdom mentality looks like uh, is, is in this story, this story that we have from history. You know, before 1947, It was impossible to exceed the speed of sound. Before 1947, if you tried to break the sound barrier, the speed of sound with uh, 768 miles per hour, also known as Mach 1, to get to that speed, here's what would happen. Uh, Pilots had been trying year after year after year. They would get the speed right up to that that mile uh, per hour mark. And right when they would get there, the the plane, the aircraft would begin to oscillate. It would begin to shake. It would begin to vibrate. And it would vibrate so much that as soon as they got to that point where you might get to the sonic boom, all of the controls would turn opposite. And so when you were flying, you would pull back to go up. But as soon as you would hit that sonic boom mark, the aircraft would completely go opposite and you would just start going straight to the ground. And so year after year, you would see Aircraft, you would hear stories about pilots that would die, aircrafts that would crash, and airplanes that would disintegrate. It would start falling apart as it was flying. And so people started wondering, well, I wonder, since as we get closer to the sound barrier, the aircraft does the opposite. So what if as we get close to the sound barrier, we start doing the opposite? What if instead of pulling back to go up, we actually push forward? What if, since we know that things are upside down, we try something different? And so, in October of 1947, the famous pilot Chuck Yeager flew his aircraft known as Glamorous Glennis, and uh, he, he flew and he, di- he decided as soon as we get to the sound barrier, as soon as we get to that, to that uh, 768 miles per hour, I'm going to do the opposite. Everything that I had been trained to do, I'm going to do the opposite because somehow it seems that when we get to this part of the sound barrier, I've got to do something different. And so he did. He controlled it. Instead of pulling back to go up, he did the opposite. And we broke the sound barrier. He became the first person in history to do so. Now, I tell you this story because in many ways, when you look at this kingdom mentality, this Sermon on the Mount, this is really the spiritual sonic boom. In other words, this is showing all the ways that you think the kingdom should work. More specifically, the ways that your kingdom works in many ways is opposite to the way God's kingdom works. The things that you think should take you up, God says the opposite should take you up. The things that you think will bring you your greatest joy, God says the opposite actually brings you your greatest joy. Much of what we're going to read over the next several weeks is going to be, it should feel countercultural to the way that we are taught, the way that we function, the way that we live. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, known as this, uh, it became known as the Sermon on the Mount, this sonic boom introduction to a kingdom that seems to work in upside-down fashion. It seems to work counter to the way we would think. It's, it, it seems to run opposite to what we would say conventional wisdom would teach us. I mean, how is it possible for certain parts of the scripture to say, if you want to be blessed, find yourself in a place of spiritual bankruptcy? I mean, how, how many places would you see uh, uh, the kingdom saying the people who will inherit the kingdom are the meek? And not the proud. That's not our culture. How many places would you see things that say happiness somehow, blessedness, comes through mourning? Pleasure is the prize of purity. Ultimate satisfaction is not found in wealth, but in righteousness. Satisfaction not found in power brokering, but in peacemaking. Greatest joy is not found in exacting retribution. But showing compassion. Our world doesn't function this way. Business doesn't function this way. Many of the things that we uh, take joy in, pride in, they don't function this way. So every word of this sermon that Jesus preaches here, it is counterintuitive. It's, it's counter uh, countercultural. It doesn't make sense on the face of it. Every word of this, everything is backwards. We've got eight upside down blessings that define what I would call the ethos of the kingdom, the ethos of the kingdom. Everything has an ethos, everything. If you go uh, to, if you fly Southwest Airlines, it has an ethos. If you go to Trader Joe's, it has an ethos. You go to Costco, it has an ethos. Our church has an ethos. Everything that you are, anything that you engage in, anything that you're a part of regularly, certain music styles and culture have an ethos. What what is an ethos? An ethos is a distinctive character, or, or, yeah, a distinctive character or attitude of a people, culture, or movement. There's this distinctive characteristic that you can see, something that is just true of everyone who is a part of this culture or this movement. And so this sermon, the Beatitudes, are the ethos of the very kingdom of God. This is the ethos. This is how we should be functioning. It's so important that we always come back to this, especially now as we've been away for two years, because you can get caught up in doing so many other things. We get caught up paying attention to so many other things, and we, we don't stop and go, But am I actually functioning in the ethos of God's kingdom right now? You know, when they say that you are behaving in accordance to the ethos of a thing, we have a word. We say you're behaving ethically. The reason why we use that word ethically is because you are adhering to this defined ethos of a thing. When you work for a company and they say, here's our list of things that you should do if you work for us. This is the ethos of the company. These are our business ethics. So the question then is, what does it mean to ethically function in the kingdom? This is what Jesus gives here. So these Beatitudes we're going to walk through, these are going to be these, the, the ethos of the kingdom. Please understand too, these are not just entrance requirements into the kingdom. Because I think sometimes we can do that. We can preach and say, well, I want to make sure that I'm a Christian, so, so the best way for me to know that, I, that I'm in the kingdom is to do these things. These are not just entrance points for the kingdom, these are things that should be true of anybody who resides in the kingdom. So when we stop and we look at this, think about the hallmarks, the hallmarks of anyone who belongs to the kingdom. Here you have Jesus. He's been going throughout Galilee, preaching, healing folks, doing these incredible miracles, going throughout all of the the area there. His fame has spread all throughout Syria. We see in chapter four, the great crowds were following him. So here Jesus is. He's created this incredible amount of attention. Folks are really wondering who this guy is. How is he doing the things that he's doing? Does he really have the authority he claims? Might he be the one for whom we have been waiting? And after all of that, he gets to this place where he begins to, to preach. You see, the king is giving the ethos of his kingdom. That's a really important thing because that means we don't have to make up our ethics for ourselves. That's important to understand because many times we feel like we, you can easily start creating your own kind of code of conduct for yourself. Well, I know that's true for you, but for me, this is my truth. Now, I get it. There are certain individual subjective things that are our truths, but the kingdom is not just a subjective thing. This is God's objective truth. So whenever your truth is out of accordance with or is out of step with God's truth, God's truth has to win, period. It does not matter what your subjective truth is in that matter. The other thing's absolutely important. But whenever your truth is out of step with God's truth, the big question is who wins, which wins. If you're in the kingdom and you function among, uh, along these kingdom ethics, then God's truth wins. If you're not functioning in God's kingdom, then your truth wins. It's really simple. So Jesus now has got this incredible crowd who have been following him. They have been watching him, kind of wondering if they, can I rock with this guy? He does some cool parlor tricks, but is he really who he claims to be? And now the king begins to give his ethos of the kingdom. So who do you have? You got this, here's the setting, the preacher, Jesus Christ, the pulpit, this hilly area somewhere in Galilee, the congregation, many disciples, not the 12 specifically. This is a much broader group from which his 12 disciples would eventually come. But you've got this large group of people who have just been following Jesus, this large group of folks who are curious. So you've got the crowds that have assembled and not only have they assembled, but they're startled they're startled just at how radical this message really is. You see, we've heard this all our lives. If you've been in church any period of time, you've heard these. So these just might sound like really basic, simple. This was not basic and simple. This was earth-shattering stuff. This actually, it, it, in many ways, it was shocking that anybody would talk this way, and I'll tell you why. But, But when you think about the ways in which the words in this sermon reverses the very logic and reasoning upon which our own kingdoms rest, he just reverses the way that people think. The things that you thought you could trust in, Jesus says, you can't trust in that. The thing that you thought would elevate you, you can't trust in that. The thing that you thought would bring you your greatest joy and safety and security, you can't trust in that. So, Listen here to this sonic boom. I'm just going to read the first three verses. This will be probably, y'all will be really shocked. The fewest amount of verses we've ever read in a sermon. That may not mean a, le- a smaller sermon though, y'all. So no. So listen to this sonic boom. Listen to the setup and listen to what Jesus says. And we're going to do this every time now throughout the next several weeks as we walk through just how countercultural this is. Chapter five, verse one of Matthew. When he saw the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This alone, just starting here, this alone really does, in many ways, uh, it's almost laughing in the face of what conventional wisdom says. But before we even figure out just why that is so countercultural, that it's interesting because just think, just think about what we say uh, it takes in order for you to, to lead something or to acquire something or to attain something. We're told that uh, Possession of a kingdom or possession of a thing, of a business or a culture or exerting yourself and exalting yourself means power. It means prosperity. It means prestige. And yet here, Jesus says they're blessed because why? Because of their poverty of of, of spirit? How? How? Now here we got to stop for a minute, and before we even go any further, we have to understand many times over the the years, people have taken this passage and in many ways sought to canonize poverty as the key uh, identifying factor of who is more holy than the other. That is not at all what this is saying. There's not even the fact that he uses this delineating kind of uh, detail. He doesn't just say, poverty. He says, blessed are the, you know, the King James, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not just the poor in in materials. And this, we have to be careful with that because for the longest time, people would take that to mean, well, the folks who may not have as much, they on some level have a spiritual rung up on the people who may have more uh, in some way. That is not at all what it's saying here. There are other areas to talk about wealth for sure. And people who trust wealth, this is not that. This is talking about something deeper. This is something that's, that's referring to something on a spiritual level, not a material level. It's important because in many, many ways, sometimes, we'll talk about this more, but our, the way our pride works, we look at wherever we are and we want that to be what exalts us. So if you don't have, and you see people who do have, you'll go, well, at least I know Jesus in a way they don't, because that's how our pride works. You'll see someone else doing something, and you will find a way, something different about you that you can use to exalt yourself. See, if we're working in this kingdom ethic, that can't happen anymore. So don't make the mistake of thinking that this is now elevating or creating some additional spiritual benefit to poverty. That's not what this is. He qualifies it by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, you cannot be Holistically full until you acknowledge your emptiness. You cannot find a place of being altogether full until you acknowledge, embrace your spiritual emptiness. That's really important. And and we'll talk the way this might hit. I promise when we get to the end, you'll see why this is actually good for you to acknowledge this and not avoid it. So let's talk about the what. What does it mean to be blessed? If, if I could, if this were kind of a, this mini series within our Summer on the Mount series, we'll call this How to Be Blessed. And it's, that would be the most basic, simple title, because most people think that they have an idea of what it means to be blessed, because blessed has become the catch-all phrase that we use to describe anything that's good, anything that makes us feel good, anything that makes us happy. We look at blessedness as happiness, and that's dangerous because when you think about the word happiness, that is rooted specifically in things that are happening. So when things are happening that brings and elicits some degree of positive emotion in me, I'm happy, therefore I am blessed. And there's nothing wrong with that understanding of blessedness, but understand that is not the kind of blessedness Jesus talks about here. I think we miss this a lot. You see, because we will use uh, blessedness or we use bless as the catch-all when we just don't know what else to say. Somebody needs prayer. and I'm not quite sure exactly what to pray. So the catch-all, Lord, just bless them. If I want to shade you and I'm from the South, I just say, bless your heart. Bless is that catch-all that we use because we're not quite sure all the time what we mean. And that's okay because we're like, God will fill in the blanks, whatever that is. And he does. Bless God. That's see that? Bless God. That's true, right? We know that God is going to do. He's going to be who he is and he's going to show his sovereignty. And all of that is true. But in many ways, if I if I said, hey, would your your day blessed today? Well, let's see. I got good weather, get some barbecue, be outside, play some songs. All of a sudden, Frankie Beverly just went through my mind. But that's some of y'all might get that. That's not for everybody. And and, and and in that moment, I could say, I'm blessed. Because, uh, I mean, obviously I'm happy and things are going well. But here's what this word actually means. This word actually means privileged, favored. The one who God privileges. How he regards people rather than how they happen to feel at any moment in time. In other words, this word blessed is something that is declared over you, not dependent upon whether or not you're experiencing a good feeling in the moment. This word blessed, to make it just very real, this word was rarely, if ever used, to describe normal human beings. When you go through the Greek classics, forget if we step outside of the scriptures and we just look at the old ancient Greek classic texts, and you look at this word that's used here, it's the Greek word makarios. Makarios is a word that usually would be used for three different types of people, three different types of beings. Uh, The first and most common was a word that was usually reserved for the gods, the gods, See, if you were Greek and you practiced kind of the, the religions of the Greek pantheon, then there was this idea that uh, you had so many different gods out there. And so the gods were the ones who could be completely peaceful and be completely uh, 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 joyous without caring about the circumstances of this world. That's what Makarios meant. This idea that you could have a deep, abiding joy and abiding peace regardless of what's happening circumstantially in the world, in your life, in the earth. And so they would never use this word about, they basically, they would go, oh, who can be Macarius? Well, Zeus and Athena can, because they you know, in the Greek mythology world, they would go be up on Mount Olympus, come down, do whatever they, whatever they want, with whomever they want, enjoy themselves, bad, good, whatever, go back up, be good to go. So in their mind, they were like, Nobody can be blessed that way. Only the gods can be makarios. In some cases, they would use this word blessed for those who have died, because the idea was once you are gone, you are no longer concerned about the things of this world. And so they would look at some of the dead as blessed in that way. And then finally, in some rare cases, those who were um, just incredibly wealthy, just wealth beyond all means. And so they would think, well, if anybody can be close to that kind of blessedness, the small kind of one or half percent. Also, you see that rarely in the Greek classic texts. But by and large, this word you didn't use to describe people. Y'all, I'm saying this because I need you to understand when Jesus starts talking here, the most famous sermon ever preached, when Jesus starts talking, he's not just saying, hey, y'all, y'all need to be blessed. He's saying do you want to be blessed like the gods that aren't real that some of y'all believe in? If I really wanted to be provocative, this would be being blessed like the gods. Because ultimately what he's saying is this thing that you guys have been taught, some of the mythological stories that you've learned, this idea about how removed from the concerns of this world, the peace that comes from that, this idea that you think only these fictional deities have, you can be blessed like this. The other form of blessed that we know <clears throat> is this word, uh, it's a compound word uh, from which we get the word eulogy, Eulogetos, you for good, logos for word, good word. The idea is that kind of blessedness is something uh, that we, anything that you can speak well of is something that is blessed, is blessed. That's the reason why when you go to a funeral, what do we do? A eulogy, you logos, good word. The idea is say something good about them. I know there's a few funerals where that didn't happen that way. People get some bad stories. But for the most most part, you give a blessing, a good word, a eulogy. Eulogy is not just for the dead. It is now. But ultimately, every single time when we are talking about being blessed, that's really the blessedness we mean. Things about which I can say something good. Are you blessed? Yes. my, my, My check came in the mail. I'm blessed. That's good. Are you blessed? Yes. Made some great food, didn't burn. That's good. you blessed? Yes. Kids didn't get in trouble. That's good. Those are all things about which we can say good things. But that's not what blessedness means here. This is a blessedness that transcends whatever's happening in your life, whatever's happening in your world. It is not even dependent on whether or not you feel blessed. This is something that is declared before it's ever experienced. So Jesus, in many ways, is already stopping them right there, because I'm telling you, I believe a lot of folks were listening going, soon as he said, okay, y'all, y'all ready for this sermon? All right. So blessed is, wait, hold up, Jesus. We don't use that word. Who, who are you talking about? How is that possible? So once they had to get past the fact that he's using a word that no one ever used for normal human beings, then they had to go, okay, blessed. Okay, blessed like the gods. But then you're saying, then you're going to add this next thing on top of it. He didn't just give the what, he gave the who. Who's blessed? The poor in spirit? So wait, you're telling me I can be blessed, have this deep abiding sense of joy in the midst of whatever's happening in my circumstances, the way the gods live. And you're telling me I can do that by being poor in spirit. What does that mean? We said this. It means, what, what it truly means is this, this idea I say this, the reason why we struggle really with understanding what this means is because in our culture, nothing functions this way. In our culture, we do a lot of artificial self-esteem, self-esteem stuff. This is not saying that it's not important to have helpful self-talk. This does not mean that we need to uh, pile on ourselves and tear ourselves down. But in many ways, we will fall into this, this, this trap, I think, of saying things like, well, um, And to say this might sound controversial, but this said, you can do anything you put your mind to. That is great sentiment. That's great sentiment. But if we just break this down logically, there are some things you just can't do. There are some things we just can't do. And the way we have taught ourselves to boost ourselves is to go, well, I can. I can, I can, I can do anything. Now, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't have confidence, and I'm not saying we shouldn't try things and push ourselves. But the truth of the matter is, we can do any and all things that God has equipped us to do. Now, there are some people who are five foot four, and they can say, "I want to slam dunk a ten foot rim." And unless you have been gifted with incredible athleticism, I do not care how much you believe in yourself; you ain't dunking a ten foot rim. It's just not going to happen, right? Now, you can say, well, I can get a poker stick and I can... Okay, with the assistance of other things outside of you, maybe you can do it, but you aren't doing it. Now, this isn't to be like, let me tear down your self-esteem. The point of what spiritual brokenness is, you have to get past this idea that you have things intrinsically to make things better for you spiritually, Because we do not have what is necessary intrinsically to bring that type of holistic, all-encompassing joy and peace. That's what spiritual, that's what it means to acknowledge. This is, please hear me, this is not to say many times when people think that, okay, I think I might get this spiritual brokenness. That's cool. So what they begin to do is engage in a series of exercises in false humility. Or, uh, in many ways, start Uh, denying blessings in your life, denying gifts in your life. So those are the folks that are like, man, you know, you are just, you're such a good singer. No, I'm not really. Stop. You're a good singer. That's okay. You don't have to uh, say things that are untrue to appear humble to appear spiritually empty. That's not what this is. This is also not to go, well, let me just self-flagellate, beat myself up, constantly make myself feel worse about myself. That's not at all what this is. You can actually acknowledge a lot of really good things about you. There's nothing wrong with that. Just understand that on your best day, all of the great things about you is not enough to redeem you. Spiritual, so so what that means is there's a degree of humility that is always at play because it's not to say let me deny the things that are good uh, about me, it means let me not place my greatest trust in the things that are good about me because those things will fail me. So, this word, when he talks about what it means. He's basically getting us away from this idea. Listen, the way our culture functions and really the culture back then functions, let's just be, be honest. What do we admire? We love to say we like humble people. But who do we typically exalt as the people that we praise uh, as leaders? It's the non-humble people. It's the people that chest them. It's the people that tell you just how great they are. I'm a huge fan of hip-hop. Hip-hop has built its, uh, so much of its identity on reminding you just how amazing I am. And if you don't believe it, I'm going to impose my will upon you in such a way that you won't have a choice but to know how great I am. Sports work the same way. It's important for me to show you just how incredible I am. Not only will I show you on the court, but I'm going to tell you about it in the press conference. Brought this up years ago. One of the, one of the uh, wide receivers in the NFL that used to do this all the time was a guy named Terrell Owens. Uh, I'll never forget, there's a funny clip of Terrell Owens scoring a touchdown, running to the opposite team's logo in the middle of the field, yelled out, I love me some me. Y'all, these are the people we think are, that's the example we think we should follow. In business, we think that's the way we show people who we are. In sports, that's how we show people who we are. In church, that's how we show people who we are. That's not a kingdom ethic. That's a very worldly, earthly ethic. You see, if you really are in the kingdom, then the hallmark of humility should be all over you. There should be a degree to which you realize, yes, I'm good at this. And yes, I'm good at that. That's fine. But I realize where my own brokenness is. I'm not trusting in that. I'm not using that in order to acquire whatever I think is my greatest hope, my greatest treasure. See, so often we praise and love the people who are self-indulgent. And as soon as we praise them, then we somehow think that's the way that I'm supposed to be to get to that same level. It's one of the scariest things about the way that we, who we look at as our heroes, who we look at as the people that we praise, who we look at as the people that are examples, our idols. It's scary because a lot of I remember uh, I've seen situations where there are politicians who are running. I remember years ago there was a politician running for office and they were asked, hey, you, you, you say that you're a person of faith. When is the when is the last time you asked for forgiveness? What did you have to forgive, ask for forgiveness for? And this politician said, I've, I've never really had a reason to ask for forgiveness. Was a very popular politician. I've never had a reason for forgiveness. I've never had a reason for all of that. I've just, uh, you know, I just, I just do what I do. And, clear, and the idea is, by the way, clearly I must be doing something right because look at how successful all these things are. See, your success is not a hallmark of God's actual blessedness either. But we think it. And so since it's, hey, uh, if, if it got me these results, then the way that I'm functioning must be it. And that's why we don't use that as the litmus test for whether or not we're blessed in the kingdom. So Jesus says you can be blessed, but the ones who are blessed to start this sermon are those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy. This idea of poverty or poor, this is not the word. There are other words for poor. We don't have time to go into them. It's a great word study to look at the different words that are translated poor throughout the scripture. There are some words for poor that describe kind of the working poor. Those who are Uh, They don't have all the money to meet all of their means or have the means to meet all their needs, but they have just enough just to get the most basic things done. It's kind of what we would look at as the working poor, just working check to check, just barely making it. That's a word for poor that's also used in the Hebrew. But this isn't even that word, the the equivalent in the Greek. That's not what this word is. This word actually describes the kind of of poverty, the kind of uh, uh, poverty that is, it literally means to cower like and cringe like a beggar. It almost means uh, this, this idea that, that I am so I am so devoid of the most necessary things in order to meet my own needs that my only hope is for someone else to give me something. See, that's that's something we don't really like. Because I, I don't want to feel like I need anything from anybody. Matter of fact, we take great pride in telling people, I didn't need anything from anybody. Why is that a point of pride? Why is that a good thing? Why is it a good thing to brag about how I made it here and I didn't need it for anybody? I didn't need help for, I didn't have to ask for. Why? In what ways would that make you look worse because you needed help? See, the issue isn't the help. You you wouldn't mind, You, you don't have anything against the type of help that could come. If somebody gave you a loan for a certain amount of money, it's not the money that you hate. It's the fact that you needed help. See, that is not acknowledging spiritual emptiness, spiritual brokenness. This idea that, that when Jesus uses this term, he's not using it economically, but he's using an economic word that people would be able to understand. He's using this to describe this idea that destitute, people who are so destitute that survival is completely dependent on the generosity of others. So in that spiritual place, this is where Jesus is trying to get invite people into. Now, if you look at the scriptures throughout the old Testament, throughout the old Testament, there was this idea, right? That for those who were materially poor, that there was a degree of blessedness that would come simply because before The idea was the only people who really knew that they needed something outside of themselves were the poor. So it started out that way. And then over time, you had people uh, that word poor in the Old Testament started being used for those who acknowledged that they had no other refuge outside of God. So there was always a spiritual component. How do we know that? That's the reason why King David, wealthy King David says, talks about himself, The poor man cried and the Lord heard it and saved him out of all of his troubles. King David, super wealthy. He's not talking about material there. The poor man cried. This idea of this affected person, a person who has had really hard things happen to them. Acknowledging spiritual bankruptcy means I acknowledge that there are no intrinsic resources by which I can save myself. It's not pseudo humility. It's not humble brags. It's not false humility. It's not artificial self-loathing. It's not a denial of God's gifts. Listen, when you have to act humble, you are not humble. When you have to put on a a humble costume and use humble language, you are not humble. It's actually something that happens without you having to intend to do it. Because if you're functioning in the kingdom in that way, that naturally happens. Being poor in spirit is not, like we said, this whole, I'm nothing, I'm worthless. It's not that. It's acknowledging that I I might have some good things, but I realize those things don't justify me. Those things don't actually bring me into this place where now I'm, I'm getting brownie points with God. In other words, this idea of blessedness means your only hope of being known by God and belonging to God is in every way dependent on God and his graciousness to you. That's what that is. That acknowledgement that there is nothing else that happens unless God intervenes. So, to go back to what we said, is this how to get into the kingdom? Or is this uh, how people already, who are already in the kingdom live? The answer is yes. Both. Both. You don't get to a place of understanding you need a savior until you realize how empty things are. You don't realize that you need to be redeemed unless you realize that you're lost. So there is a degree of emptiness that has to happen before you actually come to faith. But don't make the mistake of treating that the way you treat learning how to ride a bike. When you learn how to ride a bike, somebody came alongside and taught you how to ride. And as soon as you got the hang of it, you were like, I got it. Thanks. Watch me ride for the rest of my life. That's what we do with God. Oh, I, I'm a Christian now, and he saved me, and I sing some songs and say some prayers. I'm good. And you keep on riding because you think that this idea of humility was a one-time thing. That was just my entrance point. But I'm graduating on to other things. No, no. Humility is something we have to constantly come Back to. We have to, that has to be, that has to be the soil that is constantly being bathed in this knowledge that we need God more than ourselves, more than our ability to ride a bike. God is the bike. So we've got to get to that place where we're, we're not getting caught up in, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I've done this for some time and I'm good to go now. I'm, I've moved past the, the humble part because that's what I need to do to get in. I'm there now. Don't make that mistake. Poor in spirit is, just, is not just the first step of becoming this kingdom citizen. It's the, the steadily defining characteristic of God's servants throughout all of Scripture. You see this principle showing up even in the Old Testament. Moses gets called to serve. And what does he say? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? David gets promised this kingdom that would last throughout. And he says, who am I? oh Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Isaiah is being told this incredible message that he's getting ready to, to bring, and God calls him to bring this incredible message to the children of Israel. And you see Israel, uh, Isaiah shaken, and he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Or in the New Testament, We call him the prodigal son. I think he's one of the two lost sons in that story. But the one traditionally known as the prodigal son, he comes back to his father. And what does he say? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The tax collector, as everybody is uh, around and you've got the one Pharisee on one side that is showing off his holiness by saying, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like these other ones over here. I'm such a great worshiper. You know how much scripture that I know? You know how much money that I give? You know how respected I am in the town? And yet you've got this tax collector, the one that's viewed as the sinful one, the one that is everyone else turns their nose up at, the one that no one would think is holy, and he looks at Jesus and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You think about Peter. When, when things have already occurred the way that they have, and Peter is, wa- is carrying the weightiness of his own sin, and he says, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Or the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Paul. And the more that he tends to grow, what do you see him say? Things like, I'm the least of all apostles, I'm the foremost of sinners. You cannot be full until you acknowledge your emptiness. There is no spiritual fullness without an acknowledgement of that emptiness. You see, th- those who are poor in spirit, they don't have any illusion about who they are. <clears throat> they just know that they don't place their ultimate confidence in their education, in their means, in their popularity, in their morality. They acknowledge and see where they fall short. You know how you know when you're struggling with doing that? You know how I know when I'm struggling with doing that? It's because here's the deal. When someone comes to you to to show, hey, there's some things that's happening here that seem to be out of step with God's heart. There's some things that's happened. Maybe there's a conflict that's happened that you need to repent, but you're struggling with repenting. Here's how you know when you're not doing the poor in spirit thing, you start thinking about all the things they should have repented for first. Well, you didn't do the thing that you should have done before. And so, you know, that that hits me a kind of way. You start thinking, and then you start thinking of all the ways to self-justify. Well, you might've been hurt by that, but you know, I was hurt when such and such happened and I was able to overlook it. Why can't you? It's why we have said this for years. And I feel like we need to come back to this because what it means to be perfectly uh, acknowledging your spiritual emptiness is to be able to always be able to say, we've said it for years. I'm going to say it again. Always be able to say when somebody comes and says X, Y, and Z has occurred, you say, I would not put that past me. If your first reaction is, no, 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 that can't be it, then there is a problem with that spiritual bankruptcy meter that should be true for all of us. You see, our humility is what enables us to actually come back together. Our humility is what enables us to be able to repent. Our humility is how we repent in God's kingdom with him, and, more, and, and so much so that we should be able to repent one to another. You see this in marriages, the reason why relationships struggle is not just so often people turn into finger pointing or find ways to go, well, I, I don't really want to have to accept this thing about me, so let me find ways, maybe even legitimate things about you that I can point out. So now I get to hide from my stuff because I'm pointing out legitimate things in yours. That's not blessedness. And y'all, do you realize how exhausting that becomes? It becomes exhausting because now you're feeling the need to live a lie sometimes. You're feeling a need to uphold a facade. I don't want to acknowledge this broken part of me or this thing that's not quite right or this thing that might be sinful. I don't want to acknowledge that. So I'll hide behind the things that really are good and ignore the pain or the the things that have been caused to someone else or possibly even to God. And so now I'm living out an exhausting facade. I have to keep that appearance up. It is exhausting to live a lie. It's exhausting to live in such a way where you just have to give this impression that you have it all together. It's exhausting to live that way. This false illusion, living in this fantasy world of alleged virtue, stumbling and hoping that you don't get exposed. Instead, Here's the, here's the thing. Instead, when there is that acknowledgement of how far we still have to go, then when a fall occurs, you're not shocked. Doesn't mean you just accept it, yay, jump in the air, do ankle kicks. You're not happy about it. But you get to this place where you realize, all right, I fell. It can't be. I can't believe I did that. Or that brokenness. That's maybe there's a sinful pattern that I've overlooked and I'm broken over the fact that that thing is there, but I'm not shocked. But here's why this is not debilitating. It should be liberating because when you get to that place, when that brokenness hits or that fallen condition is exposed, you are reminded that the grace that preserves you in times of obedience, redeems you in times of failure. The same thing. That means I don't get to pat myself on the back for all the times that I've done the right thing and been holy and been righteous and go, great, look at me. You know, when you're that person, because whenever people are in tough times, you love to give all of your success stories to the other people because, well, you know, I know you're struggling with that, but let me tell you what I did 10 years ago when I was, you know, when that could have been my problem, because we won't really admit that we really had that problem, but I was really close to having that problem. And, but I did this, 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 and that, and bless God, 10 years later, look at me. Your final words should not be, your main thrust of your argument should not be, look at me. Your argument should be, look at Jesus, don't look at me, because there's a degree of emptiness in me that, might, that will indeed fail you. So you constantly remember. You don't have to sit and go, how do, I, how do I hold everything together and keep up appearances? How do I convince people that I've got it all together, that I don't fall? No, you don't have to do that. We definitely want to be holy. We want to live righteous and all of that. But if or when something occurs, we stop and go, I don't have to live in a place of shame. I don't have to live in a place of just this complete, I'm so beaten down and I'm just nothing. It's what we just said. That same grace that preserved me when I was really following God, that's the grace that's there for me. That's redeeming me when I'm far from it. That should be liberating. Because now we don't have to white knuckle our way to righteousness. We can be like, I want to be. And if the humility is there, then when those things are exposed, we are able to repent. So why is this a blessing? Well, there is this idea that he, uh, that he appends at the end here. He doesn't just say blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's an exclusivity in that language. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They can acquire and attain a residency in the kingdom of heaven. No one belongs in this kingdom without poverty of the spirit. You cannot be in God's kingdom if that type of humility is not present. So you might be in church, but you're not in the kingdom in the same way that you're not a car just because you're in a garage. You can't just stop and go, well, I've, I've done the things and, and I've, I've recited the things and I've, I've I sung the things. I, 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 all these things should be true. No, Jesus says those who are in the kingdom, those who have the kingdom are those who have this poverty of spirit, this, this acknowledgement of spiritual emptiness, this, this idea that there's nothing within me from which I can draw to save myself. The way that we know the test of being in the kingdom is this spiritual bankruptcy first. You, me, we have a, you should feel like it is your life's ambition to crush out self-righteousness. That should be your life's ambition to crush out self-righteousness, to crush out this, this instinctive behavior we have to make ourselves feel better than we really are. To cast ourselves as something better than what's really happening on a hard level. And let me tell you something. When you function like that, you're far more trustworthy. When you function that way, people feel like they can come and share sometimes really hard things they might be dealing with. They feel like they can do that. I can come and I can can share this with you. Not because you're going to co-sign maybe something wrong in my life, but you're going to be able to have compassion you're going to come alongside and you're going to be able to say, listen, I, I, you're here in this place. How can I turn your heart to where Jesus is on this one? How can I lovingly be right here? And maybe even some things in me, if I'm there to try to comfort you, there might be some things I need to reassess about the way I'm thinking and the way that I'm functioning. That only happens when there's mutual humility. That only happens when we both are in that place. But here's something else about this that's so beautiful, right? When you look at the next six uh, Beatitudes, so many times Jesus is using language in the next six Beatitudes we're going to read. He uses futuristic language, right? He says things like, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the uh, the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So many of these verses are using kind of futuristic verb tenses, right? Do this, and this will happen. Do this, and this will happen. And yet this first one and the last one uses very state of being verbs, is. The kingdom of of, of heaven is theirs. In other words, many times we think that heaven is only something that's coming, but not something that's here. Many times, so it's weird because we know we're going to get to this in a, in a month or a month and a half or so. When we get to maybe a little bit more, when we get to the Lord's Prayer, and I can't wait for this, that portion of the Lord's Prayer that says, how do we pray? That kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's this already not yet that's always supposed to be present. But many times people will kind of sit back and go, well, you know, I know that's supposed to be the case, but that's not gonna be, I'm not going to be able to have that to we on the other side of eternity. So I'm just going to post up and do what I'm doing right now. But actually, Jesus says, yes, there are some things that will be true, but there's some things that should be true right now. Spiritual humility should be true right now. That's not, and yes, as we go further in our walk, that should deepen, but that should be true right now. The kingdom of heaven is not just confined to something that's coming. It's not like a retirement account that you're waiting to mature in order to be humble. This is something that should be true right now. Some of it is here and now. This kingdom come, your will be done. This is this being in possession of God's coming of life. We are in possession of it right now. What am I saying? We've crossed the sound barrier, y'all. The sonic boom has occurred. If you're a believer, that sonic boom should have occurred. The upside down should already be, be happening. Everything is reversed. a completely new way of thinking. Something should change. So if you think about the way your logic worked before you became a believer versus now, if you think about the things that you wanted most in your life before you became a believer and now, if you think about the things that brought you your greatest joy before you became a believer and now, is there a difference? And where is the upside downness, if you will? How, how, how opposite are things for you since you believed? How opposite are things for you since you believe? And how do you engage that oppositeness? Because it's not easy. Hopefully, if we find ourselves just vibing completely with wherever the culture is at all times, there's probably a problem somewhere. Because there should be a tension. There should be some place where it's like, well, okay, I know they're saying that's up, but God's kingdom says that's down. How are you doing with that? We've crossed over. This new way of thinking, to be holistically full, is to be empty. This is a kingdom that doesn't require you to know somebody that can refer you in. You don't have to have uh, somebody who's already a member to give you a referral to get in. They don't have to bring you as a guest. It only requires, it only requires your acknowledgement of your emptiness and that you've placed your trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why Jesus? Because Jesus perfectly embodies what it means to empty oneself. He perfectly embodies. The scripture says he made himself nothing. Of no reputation taking. Think about this. Made himself a bond servant. Made himself a bond servant in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You cannot empty yourself more. And if there ever was somebody who has all the intrinsic resources to save themselves, it's only Jesus. If he he just said a word to get himself off the cross, he could have. There's no word you can say to save you. Jesus had all the words and still said, despite me having the words and the ability, I'm going to voluntarily empty myself. You have no choice. I have no choice. I don't have those words. I don't have that ability. Jesus emptied himself. And when Jesus came in the spirit of one that will empty himself, this was his message. What did he say? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Those without resources, those without assets, those who have no other recourse but to cast themselves upon the grace of God. Those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy. So, the question that we have to answer, are we spiritually poor? Can you honestly say that you can, when you kind of take inventory of where your heart is, are you spiritually poor? Doesn't mean that you're walking around sad with a rain cloud over your head, but can you acknowledge or see the places where your own heart is not where it should be? where maybe there are aspects of God's kingdom that function one way and, and, and yours doesn't. Are you spiritually poor? Do you see the levels of spiritual bankruptcy? Do you see that nothing on your own commends yourself to God? If you do, it isn't debilitating. It's liberating. Because the good news is you don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to come up with a checklist to fix yourself. This idea of engaging that humility first and walking in a way that acknowledges that, that brokenness. This is where Jesus meets us. He meets you right there. This is where you are. Jesus comes in, his spirit comes in, and these things begin to change. So maybe we may not know always how to give mercy. We may not know. We know that that's supposed to be true of the kingdom. So if any area of these beatitudes, as we read, any area of the kingdom ethos that you don't have, the answer is acquiring more of Jesus, acquiring more of who Jesus is. And what does that mean? learning the virtues of how Jesus' heart works, extolling the virtues of those to the degree that they become our virtues, getting into the scriptures, learning those virtues, and then being in community to live those virtues out, not avoiding situations where those virtues need to be pressed on. This is how this happens. This is the upside down kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. There's no fullness without emptiness. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are continually showing us not just how good you are and not just how how much you love us and how much you are bringing us to a different place, but God, you are also reminding us of where we are. Lord, you show us so often that you love us and you're with us, but you also are taking us to a different place. You love us enough to acknowledge, to help us see areas in our own hearts that need to change. God, I pray that there's no one in this room that feels like the finished product. God, I pray that for each and every one of us, the ways in which we conduct ourselves, the ways in which we comport ourselves, that it would be bathed in humility first, not a false humility, but a humility that says that any good that I have, it's because of the grace of God. And I need to rely on that grace in both times of obedience and times of rebellion. Lord, let that be uh, something that governs the degree to which we can repent well, ways in which we can love well, Ways in which we give well. Ways in which we disagree well. Father, let this be the hallmark of our lives when we claim, when we profess to be a follower of you. Let us not be known just by how much scripture we quote. How, much, uh, how many things we have avoided or abstained. And yet there's a degree of humility that is woefully lacking. Let all those things be true, but let it first be said. That humility is our calling card, not something that we contrive, but something that is accurate and true and real in our lives, not because of something that we did, but because of something you've done. Lord, let us be people that are so overrun with your grace and your mercy and the humility, the undeserved humility that you have shown to us. And let us respond with nothing else other than that same humility, God, not so that we can brag about our humility, but because your name would be made famous like it was in Syria and Galilee. Lord, let it be made famous here in the Atlanta area. Here we have this church icon, this name that means image, this name that means this reflection. God, we know what an icon is. And yet, God, so many times our lack of humility, it gets in the way of us reflecting your image to others. So God, let us be, let our greatest desire be stamping out, crushing self-righteousness so that people see nothing else but you when they see us. Let us do that now for your glory in your name. Amen. Praise God from home